encouraging message on uh, Thanksgiving, huh? Right? All is hopeless. Um, everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Have to buy some new pants stuff? No? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> My favorite part of Thanksgiving is the leftovers. Uh, I, I do most of the cooking for our family, uh, at least the past several years, because I watch too much Food Network. Um, but uh, I always enjoy the leftovers much more. The key to leftovers is simply this. Two pieces of bread, one right here. Everything that was on the table yesterday goes on top. And just top it off with gravy, right? The gelatinous gravy that's like in the, you know, in the Tupperware. You just kind of jiggle it and you wait for like two or three gelatinous drops to just kind of fall on there. It just like seeps all the way through and then you put the other piece of bread on top. That is what Thanksgiving's about, right? I don't know if you knew that, but that's what the pilgrims said. So, um, With that, let's go ahead and jump into this. Uh, I'm looking forward to this message. Um, I dropped some hints to some of you guys this week. Um, I was nervous and, and still relatively nervous about this passage. Um, I don't know if you read ahead. Um, regardless if a renovate us goes up, um, I encourage you to kind of read ahead uh, to see where next week um, is going to be, just so you can kind of think about it. Um, if you remember scripture from dummies, how many of you guys... Scripture four, not from <laughs> Scripture four dummies. How many of you guys were here for that series with us? Can we get hands? Okay. If you if you want to listen to that, and I highly encourage you to do so, uh, let me know, and I will give you a CD with all the tracks on there. Um, what is one of the main rules that we have when interpreting Scripture? We have to find out what the author meant, right? It doesn't matter what we bring to the text. Okay, that's eisegesis. We want to exegete the text. We want to say, what, does the, what did the author mean in the text? What did he have to say? Not, how do I understand this? What does this mean to me? That's, that's not where we start. Later on, we can say, what does this mean to me? Um, but it's definitely not in the same sense that we would say it when we're interpreting. Um, so that, that's one of the main um, rules for interpreting. Um, the other is to look for major themes, right? So... Um, when these men inspired by God were, were writing these texts, both Old and New Testament, we see um, common themes of what the author is trying to say. So based off of that first rule, we can go into the second rule um, of looking for themes. And, and what I want to encourage you to do is read ahead, whether there's a renovate us up or not, read ahead and look for themes that are coming through in the passage. And then what I want to challenge you to do after that is then to um, consolidate those themes. What's the main theme? What is the thread that's going all the way through this entire chapter, this entire book? Um, sometimes the chapters, as we're going to see today and even last week, are not entirely helpful. Um, those were not written in at the time of writing. I don't know if you knew that. Um, this came in later when they were saying, hey, let's turn to Ecclesiastes. Well, which part? Um, paragraph 54. Can we do that? Um, that's when we put in chapters, verses. makes it easier. They're writing no numbers whatsoever. So understand that when we're looking for themes, it's not just consolidated to a chapter, okay? They bleed over. And the reason I'm, I'm kind of giving you a refresher course on this is today it can be very confusing <laughs> if you're not looking for the major main theme that goes through all of it. Because it's kind of easy to pick out some minor themes in here and then say, well, like for a preacher, how am I supposed to make a sermon out of like four different ideas? They're not even related. How am I supposed to make a cohesive thought when I have four unrelated things, because frankly, Kohala seems pretty scatterbrained many times throughout Ecclesiastes, does he not? He jumps from thing to thing to thing, 
from topic to topic to topic, from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure, from whatever it may be, all on this quest to prove that life is meaningless. So if that is our only thread, how do we tie all these different pieces together? And so as you're reading, as you're preparing, um, it will behoove you greatly uh, to, to read ahead, to try to pick out some major themes so that you have an idea of how some of these tie back. Um, you'll see that a lot of this stuff ties back to stuff that, is, that happened last week to four or five, however long we've been in here. It goes back all the way to the beginning because it was a common theme. So with that, one of our main themes that we see is wisdom, right? We talked a lot about wisdom last week. We talked about it at least two or three other times um, in sermon format and let alone Bible study. So one of the first things I want you to understand, and you can write this one down if you want. It's a little bit long, but this is the main point for the day if you want. It's simply this, wisdom leading on to righteous living is an excellent thing. Okay, you can paraphrase if you want. Wisdom leading on to righteous living is an excellent thing. Yet, here's the key, it is only partially grasped by mortal beings. The righteousness is always mixed in with wickedness. The wise person accepts as reality the mixed nature of experience and does not struggle against it. Yeah, that's kind of a long point. Okay, I'm saying you didn't write it all. So here we go again. Ready? Wisdom leading on to righteous living is an excellent thing. Yet, it is only partially grasped by mortal beings. And righteousness is always mixed in with wickedness. The wise person accepts as reality the mixed nature of experience and does not struggle against it. There's a reason I'm having you write it all out instead of just look at it and have it printed. This is key to understanding the mixed themes in this chapter. So as we're moving on from Ecclesiastes, we'll be in chapter 7, 15 through chapter 8, 1 can flip there and be looking for how this theme fits in among the entire uh, rest of, of today, okay? So wisdom leading on to righteous living is an excellent thing. He's talked about that many times, that wisdom is to be desired. It is a good thing. It is something that we need to strive for. Proverbs talks all the time about how wisdom is for gain and foolishness is for destruction. So wisdom leading on to righteous living is an excellent thing. It is something good. It is something to be desired. It is something we should strive for. Yet, and here's the key. It is only partially grasped by mortal beings. So we have to understand that we don't grasp the entire um, volume of wisdom, if you will. So we're looking at gaining wisdom. We're looking at growing in wisdom and knowledge of God that we see in Colossians, right? We're to grow in our knowledge of him, and that leads us to a better relationship with him. Now, as I grow in wisdom and in knowledge of my wife, it leads on to a better relationship for us. We're to do the same with God. However, I'm, no, I'm not naive enough to believe that I know everything there is to know about my wife, or that I'm going to act perfectly in every situation using that knowledge. Wisdom cannot be fully grasped by mortal beings. And, and on top of that, righteousness is always mixed in with wickedness. We're going to see that in our text in just a minute. So, so what are we to do with that? If, if I can never have all the wisdom there is to be had, and if I will always mix in wickedness with my righteousness. When I'm trying to be good, I'm still going to be wicked. What am I to do with that? 
We see that the wise person accepts as reality, so we understand the very weighty, heavy reality that wisdom is this. It's accepting that there is a mixed nature of experience and that we cannot struggle against it, okay? We just accept that reality. That doesn't sound entirely encouraging, right? But this is Koha that we're talking about. So with that, um, here's what I want you to understand as we talk about wisdom, because we're getting ready to go into some some more fun stuff like last week uh, or two weeks ago, whatever it was, and we had the chiastic structure. Remember that? We've got some more fun coming up, all right? So here's the other point. The crucial thing to remember about the universe is that God has created it. Wisdom is not a key that can be used in independence of the creator to unlock the secrets of the universe, to shape existence after mortal desires, and to control life. Wisdom is beneficial, good, all those things that we talked about, but it is not a key to unlocking the universe, okay? We need to understand that God is the author of everything. On top of that, he's the one that gives wisdom. He's not going to give us, A, more than we can handle, which is not very much, and B, more than him, because it's impossible to give more than what he knows. Right? Okay. So with that, we understand that it is, uh, wisdom is not a key that can be used in independence of the creator to unlock the secrets of the universe, to shape our existence after our desires and to control life. So with that, let's go ahead and read our text. Um, we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 15. And uh, go forward. It says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, by adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you uh, that you have accommodated the knowledge that you have to us, Father, that we're able to grasp some of who you are, that we're able to receive your instruction, Father, that you ultimately have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate this text in our hearts. Father, I pray that you've softened the hearts today during worship and that you will now, Father, reveal to us the instruction you have for us. But let us take passages like these and understand so much more about how you have designed us 
what you have designed us for and how we should be obedient to you. We love you. Thank you. All right, so we did the chiastic structure uh, a couple weeks ago, right? Anybody remember how that goes? We have A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, right? And they, they speak to each other. So it's kind of like um, in elementary school, you guys have to write short stories, like three-page stories. You'd have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So like the beginning was, uh, Rusty wanted to go outside to play that day. He went outside and found a ball. Rusty played for the rest of the day, right? So what was the climax there? Rusty went outside and found a ball, right? Why did he do that? Because we found out in the beginning he wanted to go outside and play. What was the conclusion? Very good. All right. That's kind of what this is. It's very simple. Uh, we see it a lot in movies. We see it a lot in, in novels. It's typically how we encounter it is A, B, B, A, right? It's just smaller. He, he takes it out. It can be extended and then brought back. Um, the reason that typically happens is because you have like analogies in there. So you have A, what's the problem? B, analogy. C, climax. Uh, C, the resolving of the climax. B, another analogy. And then A, which is the conclusion. Um, so there's a very common structure. For us today, um, we're going to be looking at a different type of structure. It's called synonymous parallelism. Um, so we're looking at synonyms uh, for each other. Um, or in this case, um, it's kind of a, more of an antithesis, uh, but it still falls in the realm of synonymous parallelism. So we're going to be looking at two different things that parallel each other, right? Um, so what I want you to do is uh, I'm going to read verse 15 first of all and set up our tension. What's the problem? Um, if, if you have read this already or noticed as I was reading it, there's a large problem here. Verse 15, in my vain life I have seen everything. So we're talking again about a man who has, who's trying everything, right? That's the whole point of Ecclesiastes, is this man, preacher, Kohelet, wants to test these different things and see if they bear meaning. So he's seen everything. He, he has the, the resources, the ability, and the will to do so. Uh, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. How do we commonly understand this today? Why do bad things happen to good people? Have you guys heard that at work? How many of you guys have heard that from a coworker? Okay, yeah, I, all the time. I don't understand why bad things, I'm a good person. Why do bad things happen to me? Um, a, we would first say that you are not a good person, right? Um, but you can't do that in work. Uh, no, you're terrible. That's why bad things happen to you, because you are a terrible human being. Um, no, we can't say that at work. Um, it may be the truth, but uh, we can't say that. We also want to know why even uh, as Christians, uh, we're trying to follow God. Why do bad things still happen to us? Why does a, a, a perfectly righteous man die young. Why do evil people have all the resources that they want and live forever? Why does that happen? It doesn't make sense to us, right? If you're good, you should prolong your life if you're evil. I mean, we see in Proverbs, we see even in Ecclesiastes that wickedness leads, foolishness even, leads to destruction. So, yet we look in the world and we still see that this is true. Why does that happen? So that, that's, that's our tension, and we're going to try to answer that. So then he says in verse 16, Do not be overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And didn't you just tell me that I need to live in wisdom? Wisdom is to be desired. Wisdom is what brings us gain. Not meaning, but 
gain, right? How is it going to destroy me? Verse 17, do not be overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now that makes a little more sense, because foolishness is supposed to lead to our destruction, right? Well, let's, let's compare these. So what I want you to do on your notes is break it into, into half, all right? This is your notes. Right here, I want you to write 16. And right here, I want you to write 17. Okay? Two columns. Okay? Now, what you're going to do is we're going to write down each section of parallelism. So next to 16 on the margin, you're going to write an A, a B, and a C. All right. So this synonymous parallelism looks like this. Verse 16 says, do not be overly righteous. So next to A, write, do not, or be not overly righteous, however you want to write that. Whatever your Bible says, it helps you. Be not overly righteous. For letter B on 16, you're going to write, do not make yourself too wise, or do not become too wise. And then for C, why should you destroy yourself? Now for 17, under A, right, be not overly wicked. For B, neither be a fool. And for C, why should you die before your time? Now hopefully this visual helps knock it out of the park of what it looks like for parallelism. You see the two contrast very clearly here. A to A is simply do not be overly righteous. Do not be overly wicked. B, do not make yourself too wise. B, neither be a fool. C, why should you destroy yourself? C, why should you die before your time? That doesn't help. What does he mean? <laughs> Am I supposed to be in the middle? Am I supposed to be kind of wicked but kind of righteous? What am I trying to do here? So as we sort this out, our first real point for the day, if you will, is really the paradoxes of justice. This is a paradox he has set up. It's the paradoxes of justice, um, it, this is an opportunity for us to look at, at something that just does not make sense. So if Kohelet's main reason for Ecclesiastes is to discover what ultimately gives us meaning, at some point, we have to reconcile the way we see life to what he's saying, right? Now, we know that Scripture as a whole is true. We know that it is infallible, it is without error. So if that's our baseline, if that is our foundation, how do we then resolve this tension of the way the world is versus what Kohala is telling us? And so he takes an opportunity here to set us up a paradox of something that we observe in our reality that is a true thing that conflicts with the way that God designed it and why that is. So we have a paradox of justice here. He sets up a paradox saying the righteous man perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man prolongs his life in his evil doing. That does not make sense. It should not be that way. So then he goes on to then say even further, do not be overly righteous, but don't be overly wicked. Do not make yourself too wise, even though I've told you that you need to be. Neither be a fool. 
And then finally, they both seem to end in the same fashion, right? What do we do with this? So in the paradoxes of justice, we look at these things. These things seem to lead to each other, but Koholet says that this is a profound misunderstanding of the nature of things. So it, it seems, and we want to say that if I live righteousness, if I live in a righteous way, I'm going to prolong my life. I'm going to live well. We, see, we want to say that if I live in wickedness, I'm going to destroy myself. And it seems to make sense, but Kohelet is saying that as a profound misunderstanding of the nature of things. We don't observe that in our reality. That is not the way it is. Here's the problem. Both of those ways of living are incompatible with a fear of God. Living too righteous, living overly wicked. Both of those are incompatible with a proper fear of God. Where do I get that from? Verse 18 says, it is good that you should take hold of this, and from that with not hold your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So if we were to live overly righteous, if we were to have dogged determinism to live as righteous as we possibly could, what are we in effect doing? Can we be perfectly righteous? No. To get a true grasp of this, we have to understand what total depravity is. We are capable of nothing good apart from God. People that do good during Christmas season, this is going to be hard to swallow, okay? I understand that. People that do good stuff during the Christmas season, they take care of humanity. The things that they do apart from God or evil. It means sending a box full of toys to a child in Africa is evil if it is done apart from God. It means helping people who are victimized by Hurricane Sandy apart from God is an evil deed. Why? We are totally depraved human beings. Now, I did not say that we are utterly depraved. There's a big difference between totally and utterly depraved. Utterly depraved would be to say that we are as bad as we could possibly get. Now, there are no humans that are utterly depraved. Hitler was not utterly depraved. He could have been much worse. And that is a scary thing to think of. But we need to understand and admit to ourselves that we could be evil people. Because we are. And starting there makes this entire passage make sense. Understanding that we are evil people frees us from the burden of saying, I have to be a perfect human being, because we cannot be. And so when we have this dogged determinism to try to overcome that total depravity and to be perfectly righteous, or as one commentary I read said, super righteous, because we're not talking about a self-righteousness. It, it, by definition, can't be that. It has to be this idea of being super righteous, of being above and beyond really what God has made us. Now, hear me, hear me clearly here. This is trying to do it of your own accord because God has made you perfectly righteous. We have the righteousness of who? Of Christ. He has covered our sins. So we now have his righteousness. That is perfect righteousness. So what happens then when we here on earth 
look at this idea of trying to be super righteous, of being overly righteous, and our dogged determinism to do so, we are trying to refuse the limitations that God has set for us. We can't be perfect. We just can't. It is impossible for us as depraved human beings, whether you are saved or not. Once you are redeemed by Christ, you are still a totally depraved human being. We are still in our flesh. Our hearts have been redeemed, but we are still in the flesh. So as we come to this, whether being lost or whether being in fellowship with God, we are still incapable of being righteous human beings. And to do so and try to pursue that would be to refuse to accept the limitations that God has given us. Here's the problem too, though, is if we are overly wicked, what are we refusing in that case? In that case, we're completely refusing any, any uh, respect, any obedience whatsoever to the law of God. Were we made to live in, 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 as enemies as God? No, we weren't created for that either. We were created to be in fellowship with God and then to live in complete wickedness would be to refuse the image of which God has tried to make us in, of which he has made us in. So I hope that makes a little more sense now as we, we kind of work through this. The, the problem here as we, we look on is that trying to be overly righteous tries to make us more wise, right? That's the goal. If we're trying to be more super righteous, we're trying to really be wiser. And what was the point at the beginning? Even in your righteousness, you're going to have wickedness mixed in. You cannot be perfect. And the wise person accepts the reality of the nature of experience and does not struggle against it. So as we move through our parallelism, we see that you can't be this side of the pendulum. You can't be this side of the pendulum. Does that mean we should live in the middle? No. <laughs> no. If, if you understand it as a pendulum, you're going to miss kind of the idea. This isn't a where am I at on this meter, okay? It is a matter of what are we pursuing and what are we seeking after. Because the life of overly righteous or super righteous living is seeking perfectionism in and of your own self, and we cannot do that. To live overly wicked is seeking to rebel against God in every possible manner, and we cannot do that. It's not necessarily a live in the middle of things, because we can get a little confused by that in verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. If you're reading to come out from both of them, it does not mean to hold both, to be a little of both. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about avoiding both completely. The one who fears God, who has a proper understanding of who he is as creator, as author of wisdom and knowledge, and then ultimately of accepting the reality of which he has placed us in, and not struggling against that, allows us to come out from both of those. So we don't have to hold on to either one. We can't be super righteous and we won't be overly wicked. That's the balance. The balance is not where do I sit in the middle. It's how do I get away from this? How do I avoid these two completely? The problem is, is as we try to do the two things that are listed in 16 and 17, we're trying to force God's hand. And, and in that moment, we can become guilty of hubris. It's the arrogant self-deification in which mortal beings so regularly indulge as they seek to fashion reality after their own liking. We make ourselves gods as we try to be so good that we force God to say, God, I am a righteous man. Give me these things that I deserve. 
And in that moment, we understand that we've become gods. We're not doing it for his will, for his glory, for his purposes, or even through him. And anything apart from God is evil. It falls apart under its own merit. Uh, we cannot sustain this way of living or even this way of thinking. And what's dangerous about it is it makes sense if you don't think about it. And that's where we encounter the fool who destroys himself. That's why we have to think hard about Scripture. That's why we have to think hard about life. That's why when we get to passages like this, we can't just say, okay, well, I'll be in the middle. Because that's not what God's asking us. So hard things. A paradox has been presented to us. How do we reconcile it? We live in a fear of God. And he brings us out from both of them. So the second point that I want you to see is the ubiquity of wickedness. Ubiquity of wickedness. 21. It says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So, coming from this paradox of of justice, of saying, you know, even in my righteousness, there's always going to be wickedness mixed in. And then verse 20 telling us, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We need to understand again where we are and who we are because that allows us then to, to answer 21. So when we look at wickedness, we, we say, I am such a good person. And verse 20 says, do not take heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. But I'm a righteous man. Why is my servant cursing me? Well, there's your improper perspective. Understanding that we are wicked human beings frees us up a lot. <laughs> because in this moment, we can say, why is my servant cursing me? Well, verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. See, Koholet lays on, lays on the, the, the stuff pretty thick. I mean, 15 through, 17, 15 through 20, really, is not that easy to sort through, as we just saw. But in that, then he turns around and says, here's an example. <laughs> we want to say that in verse 20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Verse 22 nails it in the coffin. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Some of you are wondering why I'm skipping verse 19. 19 is, should be up first by like verse 12. Um, it kind of got moved in some of our translations and doesn't really apply to anything in this theme. If you read through the chapter um, and put verse 19 up by verse 12, it makes a lot more sense. Um, so th that's why I'm, I'm skipping that. So anyways, the ubiquity of wickedness. So we want to say we are righteous people. Uh, we need to understand that we are evil. If our servant is cursing us, I mean, let's think about this. We're talking about our, a slave. So someone who you have power over and someone who has the most to fear from you. Remember, these slaves, Kohelet is not Solomon, right? He's writing as if he was Solomon, but we're more towards the Roman time, right? What kind of power did Romans have over their slaves? We've learned some of this in some of our discussions in Bible study. Absolute power. They held their lives in their hands. 
They had no rights. So in that, wouldn't it be understandable to, to have great fear of your master? They hold their, your life literally in their hand. If you displease them, they can kill you. They can separate you from your family. They can do anything they want. Even that person who has the most to fear from you of any other human being in the world still curses you. What does that say? See, if we listen to gossip, we'll never be at peace. If even the, the depravity of human beings in their most vulnerable state as a slave speaking ill about the master, most vulnerable state one can be in, they still are wicked enough to curse that person. And we want to say, well, I wouldn't do that. Okay, well, two examples. A, we do. You know that you have spoken ill of someone else, right? It has happened at least once. No? Okay. Um, thank God we're done with election season, right? So most of that stopped for a lot of us. Um, we still do it, and we will for the next four years. On top of that, let's look at our relationship with God. God, our creator, who owns us and has absolute power over us. We should fear a holy God as sinful human beings. No? And we still curse him. When we understand the, the real state of our heart, it makes this make a lot more sense. We are totally depraved human beings. And see, gossip is, is sin no matter what form it takes, right? And so we're saying don't listen to the sins of others. Why? Well, because sin is evil. And so when we surround ourselves with evil, are we not going to be at peace? Of course not. So if we shouldn't listen to what other people say about us, why? I mean, I care what other people say about me. I want them to like me. I want them to, to think I'm a good person, to think that I care about them, that I'm loving, that I'm, I'm nice, all these things. So why should I not care what they say? Because in doing so, we find that we're putting our identity in our ego and in what other people think about us. If we take Kohelet's advice and we, first of all, correct our perspective of the world, so we're looking at things are not as they should be. We are totally depraved and absolutely wicked. If we correct that perspective, then we have to take a look at ourselves, right, our identity. So if I know that I'm in this situation on this planet and that I am prone to this type of behavior, where do I find redemption from that? Where do I find peace and comfort from that? I find it knowing that I am a child of God and that my identity is in him and in Jesus Christ. If I find my identity in Jesus Christ, Kohelet is saying that literally our hearts, for your heart knows, right, that we have cursed others. Our heart knows then that we are children of God. We, this, is, this is how we find Christ in the Old Testament, all right? When we're talking about identity, the identity of the Israelites was in what? The law, Moses, right? They found their identity in, in the books of law. They looked forward to Christ. And now us and the New Covenant get to look backward to Christ on Calvary. And in that, we find our identity there. They looked forward, but still had the root of their identity in the sacrificial system. For us, we get to look back at the ultimate sacrifice and say, this is where I find my identity. This is where I find my peace because I cannot listen to what other people say. Otherwise, I'll hear them cursing me. 
I know that people talk bad about me. I know they do. And I'm okay with that because I really don't care. I find my comfort, I find my identity in Christ. As long as I know that I am doing what God has called me to do, I know that I can live at peace because I'm a child of God. I really don't care what another creation says to me. Do I like to hear good things? Well, yeah. But I mean, let's be honest. If Clay Pot 1 is yelling at Clay Pot 2, what does Clay Pot 1 have against 2? Nothing. The Creator made them. They are as they should be. Find your identity in Christ because wickedness is everywhere and you will find no peace in it. So now we get to some more fun parts. Ready? Number three, the last point. The inevitability of ignorance. The inevitability of ignorance. Verse 23 through 8 1. So the first point of, this has two sub points, sorry. Um, so it's, I guess it's not really our last point, but last point A, ready? The testing of wisdom. The testing of wisdom. So if we're looking at the inevitability of ignorance, let's start with trying to fix that, right? If inevitably, inevitably we're going to be ignorant, how would one try to fix that? By testing wisdom, right? So verse 23 says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So what do we do with this? All right. Coelet is on a mission, right? How did he start this entire book, right? What, what is his thesis? Everything in life is meaningless apart from God. God is the one who supplies value, meaning, and the one who gives wisdom, right? That's his thesis. That's what we've been working off of every week. So how do we, again, draw that entire thread through all these different themes? We've already covered a few different themes, right? Paradox of justice, yet it still relates to wisdom, right? Wickedness, yet it still relates to wisdom, so these are unrelated themes that have a very common big thread going through them. So this one here, we're looking at wisdom specifically again. He's only done this three other times. Looking specifically at wisdom. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise. That was his thesis. But it was far from me. So this sounds like a conclusion, right? Wrong. We still have several chapters left to go. This is his, one of his first real understandings and coming to terms with his, his quest, right? So his quest was to seek wisdom. He says, I will be wise, but I found, basically, it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? If you have your Bibles, flip over to Job chapter 28. I write this down on your margin. Job 28, verses 20 through 23. Job 28, 20 through 23. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. 
Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. So back to our second main point at the top. The crucial thing to remember about the universe is that God has created it. Wisdom is not a key that can be used in independence of the creator to unlock the secrets of the universe, to shape existence after mortal desires, and to control life. So in Job, we see where does understanding dwell? Where does wisdom come from? God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. In verse 25 of of Ecclesiastes, he says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. What we see frequently with Kohalet is him doing this series of addition, right? So he looks at one thing and tries to add another thing to it and tries to add another thing to it. And we're going to see him mention that again in 26 through 8.1. But he has this systematic approach of trying to add one thing to another, trying to add one thing together to find a sum meaning of everything. So if his thesis is to find meaning in life, and he ultimately finds that you can't find any meaning apart from God, how does he reach that conclusion that we've been talking about for a while? He takes one item and evaluates it, and then tries to add another item that he evaluates, and then tries to add another item to which he evaluates. So we had um, wisdom, we had toil or work, we had pleasure, right? We had enjoying the rewards of our toil, like trying to combine these two things together. What is the sum value of all of this? Vanity. So in his systematic approach, he, he kind of has a moment of, of reflection here. He says, I've tested all this by wisdom, but it was far from me. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things. The scheme of things literally translates really to this, this arithmetic adding of, okay? So this adding thing to find a sum total. What is the entire scheme of things? And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So in that discovering wisdom and doing everything by wisdom, he can see the antithesis of what foolishness would bear, right? So in, in seeking one thing, you can exclude the other. That's what he's done. So his sum total is that who can find it out? It's far off. It is deep, very deep. Again, in Job, it's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. It doesn't mean that birds are smart. The point is that birds are in the air and they can see down over everything. So this is before people flew. I don't know if that matters to you, but it's kind of a big deal. Um, If you guys get in a plane and look down, you can see everything, right? No, it keeps going. (laughs) But even for them, someone who can get up on top of a mountain and see for a while to be a bird and see down, that's where bird's eye view comes from, they still can't see everything. He says, destruction and death say only a rumor of it has even reached our ears. So we're looking at knowledge versus a rumor. Something is unsubstantiated, has no basis necessarily. So we haven't even seen a glimpse of this. All we have is a rumor. So in understanding this idea of wisdom, ignorance is our only inevitable conclusion. As Koholet is saying, it is deep, very deep and far off. I mean, he's talking about an ocean. And we've got a cup full of wisdom. And he's seeking to try to gain the entire ocean. 
It was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So ignorance is our only inevitable conclusion. We find that through the testing of wisdom. So let's turn to virtue. Testing virtue. Well, ladies, I apologize for the things I'm about to say. Um, you can reconcile this with Sarah later if you would like. Um, I don't mean these things, kind of, but I sort of do. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's dig into this because this is a very um, hot and, and volatile set of verses. So testing virtue, 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. By adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. There's our arithmetic again. Verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God has made man upright, and they have sought out many schemes. So what does this sound like? It sounds like he's saying that women are evil. He sought for a thousand, but he found a man instead, right? Um, and that man is upright, but he is uh, taken by his schemes, right? So is that what he means? <laughs> Something we need to be careful about in interpreting Scripture. Um, we cannot defend the characters or the authors of Scripture, okay? Um, in trying to understand the author's meaning, it is incredibly easy to say, there's no way he meant that. It's so offensive. It's very easy to make that leap. Um, there are terrible people in Scripture, okay? Um, those awesome verses that I just read from Psalms earlier, those are from David. David was a man after God's own heart, right? That's what Scripture says. Um, but he did have a palace that he looked over the balcony of at a woman bathing on top of her roof and had an affair with her and essentially had her husband killed. Talk to me about total depravity again and tell me how good we are. We are capable of evil, evil things. Apart from the grace of God, we would do those things. So when I talk about utterly depraved, that would be doing, being absolutely as bad as we could possibly be. That God holds um, redeemed and unredeemed people from that by his grace. So when we look at this and we see, wow, this, this guy is, <laughs> um, that's a little chauvinistic, maybe, right? Um, yeah, it is. And uh, let's find out what he meant instead of trying to say, no, he didn't mean that because that sounds terrible. Um, what did he mean by that? He does condemn all of womankind, okay? There are a few different ways to translate this. Um, one is that he's specifically speaking about the woman, um, and our translation makes this really easy to make this leap, that he's specifically speaking about a woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. So this, this sounds a lot like Proverbs, right? The mouth of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. He who is doomed by the Lord falls into it. Um, it's, it sounds a lot like an echo of that, um, which would make sense that Kohelet is trying to write from Solomon's perspective. Um, however, he is condemning all of womankind. Um, what do we do with that? He's saying that women um, are something more bitter than death. Now, 
that sounds really heavy, right? But let's not forget earlier, uh, just like a week or two, that he did happen to say that it's better for a stillborn child um, to never experience any of life, right? Um, so if we're taking these in uh, measures of awfulness, <laughs> it's better that we just avoid life, right? Um, so there's, there's a little bit of contrast where he's saying that it's something more bitter than death because he said earlier that death is a celebration, um, something that we should look forward to, right? It's our release from this, the horribleness, the wickedness, the evilness of what earth life is, right? Um, so is that what he means outright? Um, yes and no. This is a condemnation of women, um, of womankind. And one way that we know that um, specifically is when he's talking about what he sought, right? Um, he says in verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Um, as he says in verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly and I have not found, one, add in brackets in your Bible, if you will, add this before man. Upright, okay? Add an upright man. Among a thousand I found, but a upright woman among all these I have not found. He's referring back to the context. Uh, we cannot take this verse by verse and try to interpret it as we may Proverbs. This is not the style that he's writing. We have to take this in the context of which he's, he's writing. He's talking about what? Someone who is upright. We're talking about someone who is not wicked, who is not foolish, we're talking about someone who is seeking God, who, again, back all the way to verse 15 through 17, someone who lives in the fear of God, right? That is our context. So we have to approach this with that same context. He says, one right, upright man among a thousand I found, but an upright woman among all these I have not found. That's why we know that he's condemning all of womankind. So understand, too, that this is the only remark in the Hebrew Bible um, that sounds remotely close to this condemnation of womankind. And even in Kohelet's own teaching, so of all of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's, it's not a central theme. I mean, this is the one time he says something of this magnitude. Um, he says earlier that we should... Um, well, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. It's not a central theme. Now, if something is said one time in Scripture, should we listen to it? Should we listen to it more or less than something that is said multiple times in Scripture. It's just, it's just the same, right? Well, here's the danger. What if the thing that was written was written in hyperbole? <laughs> this is clearly not a philosophical proposition, okay? This is incredibly hyperbolic. So, is he condemning all womankind? Yes, but no. It's a hyperbole. I mean, what, we're, what we're seeing here is that he's saying earlier, and uh, I'm sorry, later in chapter 9, uh, verse 9, he says that we should live in enjoyment of life with a woman that you love. So if he meant this as a philosophical proposition, he could not urge us to do that. He urges us in chapter 5, I believe, uh, when we're talking about toil, that we should enjoy the toils of our work with our loved ones, our family. So clearly he doesn't mean this. This is the only time that we ever see it in the scripture whatsoever, and even in his own writings, is it an indictment of women? Yes and no. How can it be both? 
Um, well, clearly he doesn't really think too highly of, of either, right? Um, out of a thousand people, uh, when you read this, there's some weird translation stuff that goes on. That's why there's a couple different ideas of what this passage means. Some people think that he's looking for a wife. It doesn't look like that. Um, if he is looking for a wife, he probably hasn't found one because he has these kinds of views, right? <laughs> um, if he's really a chauvinist, that could probably explain why he hasn't found a wife, right? Um, no one's going to marry this guy. Uh, it's probably not what he's, he's speaking about. It's not an indictment of all womankind flat out. It's, it's, it is a middle ground here. What it is, is he's seeking for upright people, all right? When you see the word man in Hebrew, this is written in Hebrew, there's a danger, okay? Man does not always mean man alone, like male gender. If it uses the word Adam, is the transliteration, if it uses the word Adam, it's speaking about all people. If it says Adam and his wife, he's speaking about man and a woman. Does that make sense? So when we say all of mankind, I can be both speaking about everybody on earth, or I can be speaking just about men, right? Now, to better communicate, if I want to say just men, I'm going to use words that do so, right? Like men. <laughs> they can use Adam and use it as people, or Adam and his wife to use it as both genders. So he is seeking for Adam a people, anybody, who is upright. And out of a thousand, he found one, and it was a man. No women. Now, what does that tell you? What about the other 999 men and women? How good were they? Not upright. <laughs> he doesn't think very highly of either set of uh, groups here. What we want to ultimately show you here is that in verse 29, see this alone I found all that God, or that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. All right, here's our bow, ready? The purpose of him demeaning, if you will, women, of just lambasting them here, is not to say that they're terrible people. All right, it's not to say that women cannot be righteous. The purpose here is to extol her preciousness. If we look back at Proverbs 31, what does it say about women? Blessed is he who finds a wife. How hard is it for a woman to be as she was meant to be made? And then by inference, we can find really the same thing to be true with men. Out of a thousand people, he was only able to find one righteous man. The, the purpose is not to lament her statistical rarity. It's not to say, oh, women are terrible. There are like no good ones. The purpose is to extol her preciousness. If you are to find a wife who is upright and God-fearing and loving, that woman is a precious, precious creation. And so in Proverbs 31, we find what an upright, a precious woman then looks like. Now, ladies, I'm not trying to be incredibly too hard on you. That's why I apologized earlier. Here's what I want us to take away from both of us, okay? Ladies, it's incredibly hard for you to be righteous people. Let's look at a systematic approach to that through the entire biblical picture, okay? Now that we have the new covenant, now that we have Christ, um, and we're not looking forward to it, from our perspective looking back, this doesn't become untrue, okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we have more information now. 
we have, it's not that he had wrong information, it's just that God has completed his revelation to us, right? So what does this mean? Ladies, it's incredibly hard for you to be good wives. Why? A, because you're totally depraved. B, because you're supposed to subject yourself and submit to a totally depraved man. So, does that mean you can blame everything on the man? No, because you're still terrible human beings, right? Uh, but you are married to another terrible human being. It is incredibly hard for you to be righteous and upright. Does that mean you can't be? Absolutely not. We look at the completed work of Christ on the cross and say he has redeemed us from ourselves. We have power over sin and victory over death. So now, what does this look like for us? It looks like an evil woman who really just wants to purpose things for herself, right? So how do we tie that thread from the beginning to the end of this passage? What did we talk about earlier with wisdom, about trying to force God's hand? What about a woman who tries to force her husband's hand through manipulation? Through crying? <laughs> through emotions? Just like you can't force God's hand, you cannot force your husband's hand. If you live in the freedom of Christ, if you live in the freedom of understanding that you're a terrible human being apart from him, that you cannot be perfect on your own, that's where you find this full thread of freedom all the way through this passage. Wisdom is something given to God from the one who created it. He allows us not to simply live in ignorance. And he allows us to find comfort and our true identity in him, not in wickedness. So ladies, what do we do with this? The same thing that the men have to do. We're terrible human beings. Christ has freed us from that. Christ has freed us from that. See, this alone I found that God made man upright. Man being Adam. He's made people upright. They have sought out many schemes. So we talked about these calculations, this arithmetic. All of Kohelet's calculations have brought him to just this. The recognition that human cleverness collapses of its own weight. I think that is profound. We have so many schemes, we have so many ways of trying to get what we want, but ultimately at the end of the day it collapses under its own weight. We cannot support it, we cannot maintain it, we cannot carry it forward. Whether we are men or women, we have to seek to be upright by him, not through our manipulation. So he concludes in 8.1, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. When you learn something, when you learn more about how great God is, does that not change your face? See, the things that we bear in our hearts are not, I mean, we know this in speech, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things that we say are reflections of where our heart is. The things that we have inside bear themselves on our faces. That's why if you are a rude person, if things don't come out right, it's a reflection of what's inside. If you are short with people, it's a reflection of what's inside. Just like we see the hardness of his face has changed. It's changed by what? A man's wisdom. Yet we cannot be like the wise. We cannot understand the interpretation of a thing because our schemes cannot support themselves. 
8-1 has implications going forward, which Dave will speak on next week. Um, it's kind of a rhetorical question. That's a summation of what's above, and it's answered even further in 8-2. But uh, that's what we'll call it quits today. Um, so what I want to do before we um, sing our last song is I really want to go back and do a little summary. I'm going to draw a full picture of what this looks like so you can draw a thread from all of your points, okay? So let's look first, again, at wisdom leading on to righteous living is an excellent thing, yet it is only partially grasped by human beings. And the righteousness is always mixed in with wickedness. The wise person accepts as reality the mixed nature of experience and does not struggle against it. So your first point is the paradoxes of justice. Things are not as they should be. Because we try to control them and we try to force God's hand. We cannot do that. We have to see what our true identity is, both in our perspective of understanding that we are totally depraved, and then second, in our identity in Christ that frees us from the ubiquity of wickedness. And finally, that leads us on then to the inevitability of ignorance, understanding that we test wisdom we're going to find that we only have a cup full of the entire ocean. In testing virtue, we're evil. There's no one upright. We have too many schemes that they collapse under the weight of each other. And so ultimately we understand then that the crucial thing to remember about the universe is that God has created it. Wisdom is not a key that can be used in, in independence of the creator to unlock the secrets of the universe, to shape existence after mortal desires and to control life. Who can understand wisdom? Who can seek the explanation of a thing? Wisdom brings a glowing to a man's face and relieves the hardness of his heart. As we seek God, as we seek wisdom, as we look back to Christ on the cross and our identity in him, it solves the problems for these. We live in a fear of God that allows us to escape both being super righteous and being too wicked. It allows us to live the way that we should in the image of God. So with that, we're going to sing one more song um, and then be dismissed. As the band comes forward, I'm going to go ahead and pray, um, and we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. Now, this is a hard text. It's a hard thing to understand. It's a hard thing to, to communicate. It's a hard thing to rest in. But Father, I ask that today um, we take these truths that you have illuminated to our hearts, Father, that we can see... Um, the themes of, of what you are saying, Father, that we see the, the thread that connects all this together. And Father, that we understand in our wisdom, we are free. It is good, it is profitable, it is gain for us. But Father, it still does not provide meaning. In fact, it's even a danger that can lead to us destroying ourselves. But Father, we find that in living that wisdom out in you, we find that understanding that it comes from you. Father, we find that living in accordance to your word and in a fear of who you are, we're delivered from both. Father, as we struggle through this text at home and this uh, Tuesday and Wednesday in Bible study, Father, I ask that you open our hearts and our eyes to these things that you have for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.